The Teach Middle East podcast is brought to you by Schoolfinder.ae. Schoolfinder.ae is a comprehensive schools directory serving the United Arab Emirates. Is your school a member? Go to Schoolfinder.ae to find out more. Now, enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Teach Middle East podcast. My name is Lisa Grace, and today I have with me Craig Randall, who is a educator, author, and I'm going to be talking to him about observations. Now, don't go away from the podcast just yet. This is a good one. You're going to want to listen to this because we're talking about trust-based observations. You are listening to the Teach Middle East podcast, connecting, developing, and empowering educators. Welcome, Craig. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Before we dive into this topic, please go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience. My name is Craig Randall, and I live in Washington State in the Seattle area. And I started my career as a school counselor, detoured along the way into college basketball coaching, then became an international school teacher, even worked in uh, Riyadh and Abu Dhabi for a, a couple of years in there. And along the way, somehow, accidentally, by mistake, I developed this alternative way of doing observations. And oh, gosh, 2017, 18, we came back to the US and we had enough money saved up because sometimes, as you know, in the international school world, you can do that. And I went to a coffee shop Monday through Friday, like my job. And I wrote this book and was lucky enough to have it published. And it was delayed because of COVID. Didn't come out till a year ago, September. And that obviously uh, played into delaying training opportunities as well. But then really since this September, I've been on the road a whole lot, training schools and trust-based observations. Okay, fantastic. So on this episode, we are going to dive into trust-based observations what it is and why schools should do it. But before, let me just give you a background. I heard about Craig through Claire from Aliasmina School. So shout out to Claire. If you're listening to this podcast, we met up at the We Edu get together in Abu Dhabi. Another shout out to the We Edu ladies. And so I reached out to Craig because I was intrigued as a school leader, former school leader. I used to wonder if there was a better way to do observations that were less punitive, that caused less anxiety on all parties, including the observers, because people think it's only the teachers that have angst around having observations done in their classrooms. But the school leaders are also a little bit anxious as well going in, knowing that they might have to give a judgment. God, I hate that word. But that's what it is. You might have to give a judgment on someone's performance in a snapshot that you've only looked at for 30 minutes to 45 minutes if you're good or less if you know you have to get through quite a few of them. And so I thought when I heard of trust-based observation, I like two things about it. One, the word trust. And two, that it was developed by someone who has been observed so they should know what that feels like. So great. Let's dive in a little bit. Before you even came up with trust-based observations, what were some of the things you noticed that was wrong with observations as they were or as they are currently in many places? Yeah, I think I'll maybe answer that as as before and then along the way too. Hmm. And so before, definitely that infrequency was the first thing that bothered me. I mean, 
you would have one, maybe in the best situations, two a year, way back whenever that was for me. And and so one observation, even under the best circumstances, had absolutely nothing to do with the next. Neither of us really remembered. So nothing was building upon each other. It was just that snapshot, that great, maybe some suggestions. If you were lucky that were good, but they were just in isolation and really without a lot of support on how to get better when you did that. So that always stood out to me. I would say as a teacher, I was lucky enough to not have administrators that gave those brutal, hurtful observations. And then the numbers, no one likes numbers and dealing with numbers. And and so those were things I think I didn't like along the way. I'll say that as I started doing the work on trust-based observations and then thought maybe it could be something bigger, I started doing research. And when I was writing the book, some really interesting things came out. One, the Gates Foundation study, which was seven years, $575 million to improve the quality of teaching, student learning outcomes, and graduation rates through the development of a more robust evaluation system, which really meant heavily graded and all these different indicators, which if you looked at each indicator in and of itself, you'd say, yeah, that makes sense. But there's so many of them that it's it's really difficult to do. Actually, I found another piece of research taking a quick side tour that said anything more than 10 indicators of good practice and observers lose the force through the trees because we get so busy looking for things that we don't actually see the teaching. But the Gates Foundation study, seven years, $575 million, basically more robust, rigorous evaluation, no sustained improvement were the results. And then this is interesting, just in November, the Annenberg Foundation completed a study and they did a meta study of basically all educator evaluation reform efforts between 2009 and 2017. And it showed exactly the same thing, no improvement. And then along the way, I came across uh, a man named Matt O'Leary, who is a researcher out of the UK. And to my mind, he's the predominant researcher in observation in the world. And his research found, and this is the why I think they don't work, that as soon as we start to evaluatively rate or grade teachers, the following things happen. There's less relational trust between you and me. As a result of that, as a teacher, I tend to play it safe, which means there's less risk-taking and innovation in practice. And if we're not trying new things, we're not going to get better. And so altogether, those are the things that are wrong with teacher evaluation. But I'll, I'll tell you, I think I'll just leave it there for now. <laughs> no, but you've, you've touched on something there is that the research, uh, as expensive as it quite sounds, it didn't really unearth anything that teachers themselves didn't know. We all know, I think, innately that his observations, the way they stand in many places, do not lead to better student outcomes no. because teachers get so uptight about who's coming, when they're coming, what can I do? What if I try something new and it all goes wrong? Then I'll fail. And then what's even worse is that you are generally given a grade that's going to affect your performance evaluation for the rest of your school year or even career. It it really depends on how far-reaching this thing is. So when you think of all those things, you think, oh, no, there's no way that the way observations are done is of benefit to either the staff, the teacher, or the student. So now you've come with trust-based evaluation. What is it? Why should we pay attention? Because it works. (laughs) (laughs) 
it just it flips observations on its head. So first off, in a lot of the traditional models, there's a pre-observation conference, the observation, and then the post-observation. So if we think about just starting with the pre-observation conference, if I'm going to tell you what I'm going to teach and then you're going to come and watch it, then you're not watching my regular everyday teaching. It's just human nature. I don't care if they had ratings of teachers and you were the very top rated teacher in the whole world. If you knew you were being evaluated, observed ahead of time, and you're going to talk about that lesson, it's teaching on steroids. Like I'm going to put extra effort in. So first off, how can I help you if I'm not seeing you in an authentic way? So we eliminate the pre-observation conference and it's a series of 20-minute unannounced observations. What we found is the maximum that you can do per week is 12. It really depends, though, on the size of your school to how many you do, because we find that the best range is once every three to four weeks of cycling through all your teachers. And so sometimes in a really big school, that's multiple people sharing responsibilities. But they're 20 minutes unannounced. We go into the room, we have our laptops, which people think, oh, isn't that going to be intimidating? As soon as teachers have had the first reflective conversation, and we'll talk about that later, that all goes away. There's only nine areas of pedagogy, and they're just nine core areas. I'll tell you what they are. They're learning targets, relationships, management. I'm a huge cooperative learning fan. We learn best socially. So cooperative learning, working memory, the neuroscience, and how much information we can take in before we have to build in deliberate processing time, questioning, because we all use questioning every day, and then formative assessment, descriptive progress feedback, and specific differentiation. So we go in and we capture what we see in those 20 minutes. And we try to use professional language even built into the form, the observation form. Under each category, we have written toolbox possibilities. And it's not an unabridged list, but it's a very thorough list of different strategies within that. We try to use that language as possible because the more purposeful we are with our language, the more purposeful teachers start to think about their practice. And we continue with that with 12 a week in the ideal model, depending on the size of your school, and then 12 reflective conversations the next day. But there are no ratings. There's no evaluation involved in it. There's not a one, two, three, four, exceeds, meets, any of that. And so that's the actual, the observation process without getting yet into the reflective conversation. And I'll tell you, people think, wow, that's a lot of time. But if you think about it, really, it's an hour on Monday and Friday, and it's two hours on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So that's eight hours. If you think about the amount of time a principal puts in during a week, which I think 50 or 60 is probably the maybe even a low level for what principals can put in. It's not that much time. But even if you put in four, 80 out of four, 20% of your time is not that much time, especially if you believe, like I do, that a principal's most important job is to improve student learning outcomes, then my supporting growing and improving teaching is the best way to do that. Yeah, I do agree with you. I don't know if Principals are going to completely agree that it's not a lot of time because they are going to weigh it against all the other things that they do have to do. But I do agree with you on the last bit that, you know, improving students' learning outcomes should be the top, top priority of all principals. I mean, in fact, what, what are you there for if they don't improve? And I get that. I completely get that. But principals understand that alongside that really high priority item are several other things that really pull at them. Absolutely. But I think also if we look at our time and we have this when we in our training where we talk about how are you spending your time and are there areas where I'm spending my time that could be better spent by somebody else? Are there some things that my office manager could handle that I'm doing on my own that could free up time? And so we have to look at our time and find ways to 
open up that time if we're having trouble doing it. Because some of the things we're doing, yes, are important, but they're not as important as improving student learning outcomes. And then I'll add this. As soon as, as an observer, you engage in a reflective conversation and see how transformative it is on the teacher and how good they feel about themselves, even before you start beginning to ask permission to offer suggestions and you see that growth, it's so rewarding to feel that and see how joyful teachers feel after it, that it becomes a lot easier to find that time because we like to do the things that we like to do, right? And so we're willing to find time for things that are more enjoyable. And so if we haven't experienced it, we're thinking, how am I going to do it? But then you experience it, you think, oh, I'm going to find time to do it. Yeah. So there is no pre-observation conference. I get that. It's trust-based. So I take it that it's not scheduled, that it's unannounced. Yeah, which it seems scary. It seems scary at first, but Mm -hmm. as soon as they experience the reflective conversation, they don't worry about it anymore. Okay. Okay. Sounds weird, but it's, it's really what happens. I'm getting that. So here's the other question, though. Since it's unannounced and there's no pre conference, Are teachers then free to invite you at their time? Let's say they want you to see something. Is that allowed in the trust-based observation system? Sure, that's not a normal part of the system, but it's about trust. Why are they inviting us then at that point in time? Because we've already built some trust and enough trust that they're probably trying something new and they want to see what your thoughts are or they want to show off something that they feel particularly good about. So if they're doing that, If I'm building trust and trust is continuously built, if I were to not go, I would say that would erode trust. So absolutely, people are allowed to do that. Okay, sounds good. Now, what does it look like practically? So you go in with the the laptop and what does the 20 minutes look like? I mean, I don't know how much into the weeds you want to get, but we timestamp the working memory because we show when they move from activity to activity. Go in there because these are all school leaders and teachers. No, no. We dive into it. And then we go down. There's a retention of learning pyramid. And so whatever that activity is, we put it on. Is it direct instruction? Is it group uh, discussion? Is it practice by doing? Is it modeling? And so we put that activity there. Then we go up to the learning targets. And are there any of those? There's seven areas in that that we can check off right away. And then really, we just scroll back and forth, and it's a combination of intuition, reading the areas on the form, and just what I'm watching to help guide me to what to write for the next 20 minutes. The form is very detailed, and when people first look at it, it, it's overwhelming to them. But it's not that hard. There's only nine areas. If you think about, like in the U.S., Danielson or Marzano type, or an Ofsted type with all these different indicators... There's way less to do. It's just ours is more specific in the way we write it and the way we do the language. So at first you're like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? But for example, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky right now, and we just finished our first day of training. So yesterday, those two principals, we got to practice three times. And already by the third time, they're like, oh yeah, this isn't as bad as I thought. And then by Friday, because we've done it like 15 times, they're like, oh, yeah, I got this. So that's really what we do. When we get into the reflective conversation part, I can explain how that works. Yeah, which is where I'm headed, because I I just want to build up. I I want people to get a picture of how this compares to what they're used to, because, you know, what we are used to is so deeply embedded that to unearth that and to put something else in there that's 
even though it's going to be of great benefit to all the stakeholders, it's not always easy to uproot and to put something yep. new in its place. Yeah. And I yep. and I really think what we are doing currently in many places doesn't work. So I'm really excited to see what else is new out there. And trust-based observations sound like something I think schools should explore to at least say that we've tried something new and potentially they might stick with it and might realize all the great benefits that are attached but until they get that willingness so i'm trying to get through this sure can i can i add this piece and you say they might stick with it but here's what i'm going to tell you is now i don't know since the start of the year we're getting close to 20 trainings we've done I, i don't have the exact number but this is honest to god this is what every school leader says when we're done This is absolutely the best training I've ever had in my whole life. And they just say it's transformative. Actually, you want me to pull one up? This is what our school leader recently said, just to give you an example. And this is fairly common. I mean, I feel a little embarrassed sharing it. But but if you want to hear like why it works and what school leaders are, let me see if it's here. Craig has just trained all the leadership team at our school. It has been the most amazing training and process we have ever had. The revelatory nature of reflective conversations, the detail and depth of observations is like nothing we have ever done before. This is not for the target-focused obsessives, but for those that trust their teachers, want exceptionalism through trust and strong relationships. The results are incredible. This is just after a week of training, she's saying this. We are so excited about rolling this out for all staff. And really, we get that some version of that every week, like instantly they see the difference. They always talk about there's like there's a buzz in our school because teachers get so excited about it. They start talking to everybody. We've had schools where they've had really toxic heads before and this new head comes in. And so they've been really, really cautious. And there's some even some PTSD there. And and at one school we trained them in the UK and then they had two more days. So that's really seven days altogether. And one of the school leaders says, Craig, the healing has begun already. You can just feel it. And that's what happens. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, because in my years, I know for sure there's a lot of trauma around observation. Like I've mm-hmm. had teachers break down in my office crying yep. because yep. 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 I had to tell them that they scored this or their score is that. And I'm telling you, it was no fun for me and it was no fun for them. None of that score had anything to do with improving teaching. So why do we have to do it? It, It's ridiculous. So, okay, I'm getting converted, people. (laughs) All right, here's my next question for you. So the observation takes place and then you sit down with the teacher. Walk me through... Yep. what that conversation is like. And take your time with it, Craig, because we want to. No, I, I, I will for sure, because that, that's where I, what I say is the magic happens. So we do it the next day. And so we do an observation one day, the, the reflective conversation the next day. So every single thing we do is aimed at building trust. So when we go into the teacher's room, we always ask permission along the lines of, hey, is now a good time? No one ever says no, because if nothing else, they just want it over with because they're worried about it. Right. So they always say yes. But asking permission is just a sign of respect. It's a little trust builder and the little trust builders matter. And so then when we walk into the room, we just say, so research shows that if, if there's a hierarchical position difference, if I sit across from you, that magnifies that difference. 
But if I sit beside you, parallel to you, that minimizes the difference and makes us more on equal footing. I mean, it still exists, but it's there. But also, so I have a couple of 20-year-old twins. And so there were some of the teenage years where trying to get them to talk was, I mean, it was like pulling teeth. But like you could go on a walk or a hike, or you could be in the car and somehow sitting beside changes the dynamic and they're more willing to talk. I find the same thing tends to work with adults as it does with teenagers. And so we sit beside them. We also want to be transparent and we want to show the observation form as we're doing it. So we sit beside them. We make sure they have a good view of the form and we just tell them what's going on. And we just, we usually just say, Hey, there's two questions we always begin with. And so let's just think about that. Instead of my telling you something, I'm beginning by asking you, in essence, saying, I value what you think. I value and trust you as a professional. What are your thoughts on your lesson? So the first question is, what were you doing to help students learn? And when we say that, we mean pedagogical strategies. What were you doing? And we just say, hey, so I promise you I'm listening, but I'm typing so you won't always see the best eye contact. And so we type their answers and whatever they say, sometimes we have to guide them into pedagogical language or sometimes they'll speak globally and we have to direct them to like, no, the strategy was you were doing that first 20 minutes. And then when they use language that's not pedagogical, we reframe it. So sometimes the teacher will say, so then after they got started on their, on their project, I was walking around the room and checking on their work and then sometimes giving them advice. Sometimes if I saw there was a big misconception, I'd stop the class and re-explain it. So then we would write that as you were formatively assessing, providing descriptive progress feedback and specific differentiation as needed. So then we're building their capacity to think more purposefully about exactly what they're doing. So then the second question is, if you had the opportunity to reteach the entire lesson, what, if anything, might you have done differently? And we pause them again and say, the reason we have anything in there is because most of the time when we teach, we think after we think, oh, I should have done. But sometimes when we teach, we think nailed it. And that's just the way teaching works. And so we tell you that because Sometimes because I'm the boss and I ask this question, you might feel compelled to provide an answer when you did feel you nailed it. And if you nailed it, let's celebrate that. So then we say that, then we ask that question, then they provide it. Listen, and sometimes, not very often, but sometimes they'll say, I nailed it and I didn't necessarily think they do, but so what? I've never had anybody do that every single time. And if I'm building trust, it doesn't really matter. It's about when we get to the point to ask permission to offer a suggestion, what are we going to do then that's going to have the most impact? And again, it's about building trust. So after those first two questions, this next part, which is vital to me, we do every single time until we know that they know it to be true. And we tell them, look, the goal of trust-based observations, we want to share that with you. The goal is for me and every other person in this building that does observations to build enough trust with you and every other teacher in the building so that you know that if any single one of us come in and watch you trying something new and it's a disaster, that when we leave the classroom, we built enough trust that you have absolutely no worry in the world because this is what's going to happen. And you know, this is what's going to happen the next day during the reflective conversation. We're going to go. I love that you were taking risks, high five or fist bump or whatever, because when we create those conditions of trust, then this is what will happen. You will persist in taking risks and every other teacher in our building will persist in taking risks, which means we will necessarily grow and we'll be building collective teacher efficacy in action and we will definitely see improved student teaching and learning. And so we tell that bit 
And I know maybe it sounds corny to share it, but it is what we're aiming for. So why not be transparent about it? And then we go on and we just say, okay, we're moving on to the evidence up. And we go through and we say, we saw the learning target. It was an I statement. It was unpacked. It was constantly displayed. You were doing, uh, you provided some exemplars. You, if those things were on place and the pieces that weren't in place, we just say, we didn't happen to see it this time. And so we share all those. In the relationships and behavior management, we'll title what we saw, but then we provide examples of what they said. And in the relationships and behavior management piece, capturing their words is so powerful for building them up. And so we do that and we share that. We move down to the cooperative learning and the working memory. We share the timestamps and show them. We go into the Bloom's taxonomy. It's this pyramid and we put the questions in line with each thing on the pyramid. We show those progress as they do. And then in the formative assessment and descriptive progress feedback, specific differentiation, we've got these tables. And so a really common thing that we'll hear teachers say while we're training is before when I had an observation and it went really well, the principal would say, oh, that was great. You have such great relationships with the kids and it was so engaging. You could just tell everyone was learning. And they always say they appreciated that. But now we might say, so when we look at the formative assessment, it was a teacher-led formative assessment. It was planned for, and it was while you were circulating the room and it was a mixture of observations, conversations, and artifacts of learning. So in some ways, I haven't even added judgment to it. I just said what you did. And just by saying that, they just say that means so much more to me because it's so specific. And so that's just it. And that's the observation. And then at the end, we just make sure they're okay with everything. We're totally transparent. We share the form with them afterwards. So they have it in their files. And it's amazing. Every week when we do a training, we have at least one teacher teary-eyed or on the verge of tears of joy hearing their strengths shared with them, which I don't think is necessarily a praise for trust-based observations as much as an indictment in current models that aren't doing that. But then when you do that, that's what builds the trust. I'm going to add one more piece. So the very first three visits, that's all we do. And we do that because we want to set a tone that this is the new way we're doing things. So we don't even begin to think about offering a suggestion until as early as the fourth visit. But on the fourth visit, if you want to, you can, but even then that's different. We ask permission. Hey, I have a thought. Would you like to hear? And just that little thing makes a big difference. And then when we offer it, it's supported. And these are the two different, three different ways that you potentially support it. One is because I'm in classes so much, I really start to know who's really expert at each different area of pedagogy. So I'll say to one of those teachers, hey, uh, Mary, I know you're so good at formative assessment. I've got a teacher that could stand to benefit from your knowledge. Would you be willing to work with that teacher? No one ever says no because they've been empowered that you say that. So that's one way. On the observation form, I think I told you about the toolbox possibilities. We've made that a professional development resource tool. So it's hyperlinked to another page that shows like, here's some deep reads that you want to do. And here's all these articles about things that you could begin to implement. So then maybe I've looked up two or three articles that that teacher and I could go over that they could read with us and then begin to work on implementing tomorrow. Or the third one is if I don't have either one of those, I've already looked and found an outside training that I could send you to. So that's supported. And really that that's the way the reflective conversation works. And over and over and over again, just one time through and teachers, they just start telling all their other teachers in the building. And so everyone who was worried about it during the training is like, oh, wow, can you do me? And it's so weird, but it's, it has this magical quality of just transforming it.
Yeah, there's so many things I heard in there. And one of the major things that I heard is about creating that safe space for teachers. Mm -hmm. Really such a powerful thing. And the second thing I heard that really stood out to me is when you talked about asking permission before offering suggestion. Do you know what that does to a person, especially the fact that they are a professional that's been denied that level of dignity for so long that when you acknowledge their professionalism and the fact that they are actually professionals, that you want their permission before you thrust suggestions on them. Powerful, absolutely powerful. And Mm -hmm. I mean, for all it's worth, if that's the only thing it does, it does a whole lot. You know what I mean? It makes a big difference because so in all my time of asking permission, I've only ever had one person say no. And, and I jo- always jokingly say, and she was French and which she was. But really, it wasn't about that. It was really she had some built up baggage from maybe some traumatic observation experiences before. So I was like, no problem. But then about three months later, I did it again. I thought maybe enough time had built and she was open to it then. But generally speaking, if I tell you what to do, you're going to do it. But that's going to be strategic compliance. Strategic compliance is never going to be as effective as something that I willingly embrace. And by asking permission and supporting it, you willingly embrace it. And that makes a big difference in the effectiveness of it as we begin to implement that into our practice. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think the the conversations afterwards are really what drives it. Because if you think about how the conversations normally go, it's a very nervous teacher sitting in front of someone, handing them judgment. You know, there's nothing collaborative. There's nothing developmental about that. There's no no way that teachers walk away from conversations of that nature thinking, you know what, I really ought to try this. I feel very proud of this. I feel, no, you know, of course there are teachers who are graded to be excellent or outstanding, but what about the majority who aren't? What are they walking away feeling like? And even if I'm graded outstanding, maybe that'll cause complacency. Yeah. I'm already where I need to be. That's not what I want either. I want everyone learning lifelong learners, right? We better be walking the talk, every one of us, if we want that from our kids. Yes. And especially if we're saying to kids, growth mindset, growth mindset. Well, okay. If you're giving me a fixed judgment on my performance and I'm going to, let's say you tell me I'm outstanding. I sit with that then that Mm -hmm. closes me off from pushing for further improvements. You are so right. You are so right. Quick one, though. Observations, trust-based. How do those feed into these very rigid staff evaluation systems that we have, especially here in the Middle East? How do they they fit in? They absolutely don't. And so let me tell you a couple of things. So one, we have our own summative evaluation. And so... Basically, we've taken out the rating of pedagogy because we know what it does or what it inhibits, maybe I should say. And so we evaluate professionalism. Am I getting done my responsibilities, turning in my grades on time, doing my duty, all these other things that factor into any job in the world. We do planning and preparation because with teaching, that's absolutely vital. And really, you could argue that some of those things are in the Ofsted or that ADEC model or or whatever, too. And then we also do collaboration and collegiality. We're a people business. And as a teacher, I'm working with children, my relationships with them, with peers, with parents, and with administrators. So I've got four different groups of people I'm working with on a daily basis. So my ability to work with them 
And so we've all those three, but then we've taken out the pedagogy and then we've added mindset. But we've set you up for mindset because we have this whole other area on professional development tied to those nine areas of pedagogy and annual goals. And then a third question that we ask on the observation form, once we get started, we don't start this till the second year, is tell me about your progress on your action research goal. So as long as I'm actively participating in that, and then if you ask permission to offer a suggestion and at the right time, you're ready to accept and work on it, you're going to be at least proficient in that. And so that's what we do. Having said that, let me say that there are some places, like in my own state, I'm not allowed to do trust-based observations because they say you have to do one of these three models. But in Colorado, and even with some leaders in the Middle East that we're talking to about providing training, they still currently, hopefully they'll change as they start to see this new model, requiring at least an end-of-year evaluation. So what, like our school in Denver is doing and what the schools in the UAE that we're talking to about it are doing is they're flipping it on its head. One, they're making it only the end of year, but then instead of making it my giving you a grade, they're making it more like a student-led conference where the teacher leads us to it and they share what they want to do. And then we usually have them send that to us ahead of time. And so if we think about teaching on a staff and we think about maybe who am I worried about, Maybe that's one or two teachers. So for every other teacher in my building, frankly, who cares what they put? Because you're working on growing and you're already at least decent, right? So I'm not worried about you. So why make a big deal out of it? It satisfies the requirement and it does nothing to inhibit trust. So instead of having a deficit mindset and focusing on, well, you're not there, but you need to get here, we think strengths-based. And so it's no big deal. But then for those one or two teachers, instead of making everything really to accommodate those one or two teachers, which is really what the evaluation ratings are about, then we just deal with those one or two people along the way. And that's how we do it. And that's how these schools are doing it. And it's so far, it's working well and not getting in the way of everything else we're doing. I think there is a level of flexibility in there, the way you've described it, where you know your teachers who aren't, they're not willing to change. They're not willing to, you know, they might not be strong pedagogically, And no amount of professional development will help to change that because they're not willing to change within themselves. So why have a punitive system in place for everybody when you could have a nice trust-based system and still handle the people who need to be handled? And I want to add one piece to that is that every single teacher that I have not renewed in my career, even if their teaching wasn't good, professionalism, planning and preparation, collaboration and collegiality or mindset, when they're not a good teacher, I guarantee you it manifests in one of those other areas. So that will never prevent you from doing what you have to do in those difficult situations either. Right. Okay. What if you find there are weaknesses in certain areas after you've done the trust-based observation system with the staff? How does the teacher development piece come in? Yeah. And so that I just started to touch on that a little bit earlier. So for each one of those nine areas of pedagogy, we provide a professional development community that meets once a month. We don't start this till the second year, but let's just say I started this even just this month. Usually by May, I'm going to have a pretty good idea of who's really good at what. So I approach those teachers in the spring. And I say, hey, we're going to start professional development communities that are monthly meetings on working on growing in such and such area of pedagogy. 
you're really strong at that. Would you be willing to facilitate that? If it's a big faculty, maybe I'll have two people do it or three people do it. Again, nobody turns you down because you've just said you're a rock star in this area and I want you to show everyone else how to be a rock star, right? And then we don't really make it overly prescriptive. There's a little bit to it and I'm going to come back to that in a second. And so even though we don't use a rubric to rate teachers, we do provide a rubric for self-assessment for the teacher. So at the beginning of the year, we give the teachers the self-assessment of that rubric. They use that information to rate themselves and then make a decision on which one of those nine areas of pedagogy I want to focus on becoming a master in over the year. Having said that, as a principal head teacher, we always have the right to guide somebody into an area if we feel like that could be their benefit and I might put themselves in the wrong area. We always do that ahead of time so they don't put in effort and then we change them. That would erode trust. So then after that, each teacher writes a SMART goal related to that area. And then that's the area that you work in all year. So we meet once a month. The facilitator provides a some kind of a pre-assessment the first time with some kind of new content about a strategy that they could begin to implement tomorrow. And then each subsequent monthly meeting, it starts with some type of reflection and processing and troubleshooting on what we've been doing that last month, trying to work into our area, and then some new strategy or, or additional building on to get better and better at that. And so really... That's the main way that we do professional development, in addition to the suggestions that I talked about before, and those are supported as well. But the other thing about this that I'll add in terms of professional development and goals is that I will tell you as a teacher, I have been guilty of creating my goal in September. And then in May, I get an email from the head teacher saying, hey, we're going to do everyone's end of year evaluation and talk about your goals and I gulp. And then I go back and look at my goals. And luckily, somehow, incidentally, I've made progress on my goals. When things are front of mind, when we have deadlines, we perform better. Because we've added a third question, which is talk to me about your progress on your action research goal. So every three or four weeks, I'm being asked about it. And I'm meeting on it once a month. So that is way more likely to cause growth in that because it's not a one-off training and expect you to be there or, hey, get better at this. We're intently focusing on one area in as many different ways as we can to support your growth in that. And that's really the professional development model we have. Yeah. And I like the fact that you you actually are utilizing the expertise within the school. So when you find... People who are strong in a particular area of pedagogy, you take. I want to add one thing about that. So, but for the teachers that are leading that, the problem is they don't get to participate in something else. So they're not getting to learn in the same way. And so, what we do is in the spring, after it's been going for almost a year, we approach the current facilitators and we say, Who's your new master? Who's the person that's become really, really engaged and passionate about this? And then we tap that person to be next year's facilitator of that same area which thereby frees the current facilitator to go and learn in another area the next year. And then you can just see over time how that builds and builds and builds and frankly empowers everyone. Yeah, I can see that. I can see how once you start changing the roles as the years go on, then, you know, if people stick around, because this is the Middle East. Yeah, sure. (laughs) But even three or four years, I'm going to get three or four of those nine areas that I'm going to have a chance to work on. And we're going to assume that you're already pretty strong in some other areas. So you're still getting to work on the areas that are probably the areas that could require the most benefit from working intently on. Yeah. For schools that are thinking, you know, this all sounds really, really good. We'd like to do it. But, you know, for legislative purposes or, 
you know, their owners, it's a private school and they want to be able to have some sort of data or, you know, how it is in this part of the world. Is there any way of the trust-based system being used in parallel with something else or do we, it's difficult, right? I, I mean, I sure don't recommend that. Like, I, I don't think you can do that and then be coming in once or twice a year during the year and then providing ratings and think you're really going to build genuine trust. I can be my most empathetic, compassionate, positive person I am. And, and I'm not saying you can't have some benefit, but there's no way you're going to maximize benefit with that. I really think, though, people are already being creative, even in the Middle East, on how we can find ways to make this work within the current framework of the system. And I think just like like anything, if enough momentum builds and enough word gets out and enough people understand what it's doing, it definitely will improve retention too. And I know if you're an owner and I know how much it costs to onboard somebody and people are staying longer because they like this, then as an owner who's worried about money, that saves me money. So maybe then they'll go, okay, well, yeah, let's let's forget this old way because of that as well. But I, I don't recommend it in combination. But in the meantime, I think there's some ways you can finesse, but not overly because you're going to get to a point where it definitely isn't isn't doing what we want to have happen. Oh, Craig, thank you so much. It's been a really enlightening conversation. I'm sold because I genuinely believe that a trust-based system is the way forward. The truth is education is stuck in a past era. In the private sector, very few places will you go to nowadays that's got grading and ratings attached to people's evaluations. A lot of it is based around OKRs now in the private sector and talking to people about where they see themselves, what strengths, and people having real developmental conversations. So we really in education ought to be moving swiftly in that direction towards a trust-based evaluation system and get rid of one of the biggest hindrances to teachers and school leaders, which is this punitive observation system where people are anxious days, even weeks before the observations happen. Some teachers, they can't sleep the night before. And how do you really expect teachers to perform at their best if they expect a big stick to turn up in their classroom the next day and beat them over the head? It won't work. So I thank you, Craig, for developing a system that will really help to put an end to this. I really enjoyed our chat. How can we reach you? If schools have heard this podcast episode and think they really want to try the trust-based observation system, how can they get in touch? And I will just say, I really, really recommend the training. As proud as I am of the book, there's just no substitute for getting trained by someone that really knows it, whether it's me or, or somebody else that we have doing it. Because it, it just sometimes there's little mistakes we say and do along the way that accidentally inhibit trust. And then just getting the reflective conversation feedback during it. I just, I can't recommend that highly enough. So having said that, you can go to trustbase.com and you can look at the website and you can contact me through there. My email is Craig at trustbase.com on Twitter. My handle, I don't know what you call it, is at TrustBaseCraig. And you can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn to Craig Randall. Brilliant. And we will put those in the show notes as well so people can click through and connect with you. Thank you for being on the podcast, Craig. It's been fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Teach Middle East podcast. 
Visit our website, teachmiddleeast.com, and follow us on social media. The links are in the show notes.